Come on. Welcome to Money Savage, a savage approach to personal finance. This is George Grumbacher, and the time is right. Welcome to today's guest, strong and powerful Adam Grossman. Adam, are you ready to do this? George, thank you. I am ready. Excellent. Let's do this. Adam is a CFA. He is the founder of Mayport, a flat fee financial planning and investment firm. I'm excited to have you on. Adam, tell us a little bit about your personal life, some more about your work, and why you do what you do. Thanks, George. I live in Boston, and I have four children, and so most of my time is spent uh, being their driver. But when I'm not their driver, (laughs) I am an investment advisor. I work with uh, high net worth families as a financial planner. Nice. So four kids, what are the ages? The oldest is in 11th grade, and so looking at college, and the youngest is in second grade. Okay. So you got a little bit of everything there. A little bit of everything, and I think it gives me an appreciation for some of the challenges that families have. You know, I think the the biggest single challenge that the people talk about is the cost of college education, mm. and so I'm starting to see that up close myself. <laughs> you're staring right down the barrel on that. Well, hopefully, uh, hopefully your your 11th grader is is really good at something. I'm I'm sure that he or she is good at a lot of stuff. But anyway, thank you. So, uh, um. Well, tell us a little bit more about your work. I know that um, that the flat fee financial planning is maybe something that people aren't that familiar with, but love to hear a little bit about uh, why you do the work that you do and maybe the people who you serve. Sure. The career that I'm in now is actually a second career. Earlier, when I got out of college, I was actually in the technology field. And so I was an outsider to the world of finance and you know, as a running a startup, I had ups and downs over the years. And in the end, the company ended on a positive note. But what I noticed was that it, when it was all said and done, that the investment industry didn't seem to be very helpful to me when I had no money. And later, when I had some money, they were they seemed to be equally unhelpful to me. Hmm. Uh, you know, I dealt with a traditional stockbroker who would just kind of call and say, you know, hey, buy this or buy that, and, but never asked me anything about my goals or whether I was saving for retirement or anything about cash flow, you know, anything that, that kind of really mattered. And then later on, as I said, the company ended on a positive note, and I was looking for an investment advisor, even though I was in the field myself, uh, I felt that it would be good to have another set of eyes and it would be good to have an independent advisor to work with. But folks, you know, they just wanted to charge a percentage of assets. And, uh, you know, it seemed like that that didn't make a whole lot of sense. And so that was kind of the first time that I start to started to think, well, gee, why is it that the investment industry charges people a percentage of assets when most other professionals just charge a fee for service, whether it's your doctor or your accountant or your lawyer, the fee may be high, but at least it is transparent and it doesn't go up simply because you you earn more or have more. And so that's what really set me on the road to thinking about a new model for starting an investment firm. Got it. Well, I think that makes sense. All too often, it's a matter of necessity breeding innovation and 
gosh, it would have been great to have this kind of a professional work with when I was getting started. And it would have been great to have somebody to work with like this when I was, you know, maybe had more capacity to do planning. So I, I, I can definitely see the importance of that, but wanted to dive a little bit deeper into that. Um, what, I, I guess for lack of a better question, if, if you could talk about the kind of advisor that you would have wanted right when you were getting started, what would some of those conversations have been like or some of those services have been like? It's, it's You mentioned cash flow, maybe goal setting, but if we could talk a little bit more about that, that'd be great. Sure. No, I think when you're a kid, and by kid, I mean, you know, in your in your 20s, you're just out of school. If you don't work in the investment field, then you you really don't know anything. So you don't know what an IRA is or a Roth IRA, what the value is of that. You don't have any sense of how to do the math about how much should I be saving. Uh, you don't have the presence of mind to be thinking about priorities. So, uh, you know, should I should I buy a new car? Should I lease it? Should I be saving for a home first? Is retirement a priority? Um, our first child came along. Um, I got some advice from someone, hey, never mind a 529 plan, uh, put, put money into a trust to avoid estate taxes. And, you know, that advice, you know, is, is something that I, I regret following. I wish I had money right. uh, in a 529 at this point. And so it's those kind of nuts and bolts financial planning questions that I think are, are important. And, you know, like in a lot of fields, there are no absolute right answers you know, quote unquote, right answers in financial planning. But I think that it's important to at least explore those areas and to understand what the what the trade-offs and considerations are. And so that that's where I think you can add a lot of value and a lot more value than sitting and talking about whether you should own, uh, you know, Google or Apple stock. Right, <laughs> for sure. So dealing with that, dealing with priorities, you, you talked about how well, obviously, for a 20-year-old versus a 40-year-old, your priorities are probably going to be different. And it's a matter of maybe just sitting down and considering and thinking about and putting pen to paper. And I think that there is immense value to that. I guess, what do you wish that, that maybe more people knew or understood about money? Is it just how important it is to be thinking about these things? And what are some more of those things that you wish more people knew? There's a body of research in psychology that talks about how people have a hard time recognizing the fact that their future self is is really the same person, uh, but simply older. And it, it seems counterintuitive. You know, of course, I'll be the same person at 60 uh, than I'm at 50. But people have a hard time with that. And so as a result, they discount the importance of taking care of that, that older version of themselves. And I think that that, that's probably the most important thing is for people to sit down and think about, well, what, what will I need? Because of social security, you know, at the maximum provides about $45,000 in benefit. You know, if that's, if that's not going to pay your bills, then you need to be thinking about what you need to do to take care of your, your future self. And I think if people recognized that, you know, again, it's counterintuitive, but really you're, you're talking about the same person that, you know, you, you should be taking care of yourself. It's extremely important. And that that's probably the first thing that people need to do. 
Yeah, and that is way easier said than it is done for sure. <laughs> I remember, uh, I don't remember what the company was. It was, a, I think, a retirement company, and they started putting on one of their websites uh, some kind of an app that would age you. So you'd take a picture of yourself, and then it would show you a picture of what you maybe would look like in 40 years or 50 years or whatever it was. And I remember thinking maybe, maybe that was a cool idea. But now that I'm more of that guy who I've got gray hair and 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 and, and, and some gray, I I'm, I'm still don't I don't I still don't know that I can get my arms all the way around it. But I appreciate the uh, the difficulty of embracing that our future self is the same person. So you maybe want to put some more money away for that future person. So um, for sure. And then the idea that there's no right answers, uh, I think, is also a really really valuable one. And the importance of being able to ask good questions and then not judge the answers your clients give you is probably a really important thing, too, because I think we carry a lot of shame sometimes and embarrassment if we're not doing great financially or we think that we should be doing something different. Um, Do you find that there's one aspect of the financial planning process that is more difficult for people? Is it opening up? Is it following through? I think that following through is actually a a very good point. You know, people are busy and especially people with high incomes, you know, tend to be more busier than than average. And so I think that for a lot of people, it's not so much fear that holds them back as it is just simply having the time. And whether that's, you know, taking the time to do some of the planning that we've talked about or simply just taking the time to move money that may be accumulating in cash uh, over to an investment account. And so I think that, you know, especially over the past 10 years, when the markets have mostly just been marching higher, that it's gotten a lot of people stuck that to the extent that they have a few minutes to think about it, they look and they say, oh, geez, the market's at a new high. And so, you know, maybe now is not the time to do anything with that cash. And so as a result, it sits there for another year. And so I think that that, that is a big obstacle for a lot of people. I think that another obstacle that holds a lot of people back is that they they worry that their decisions are emotionally driven and they feel that that's not the right answer and that, that when they're speaking with a financial planner that they need to be you know entirely numbers-based and rational. And what I try and tell people is that there are always two answers to a question, and you know, one one is what the math says, and the other is what your emotions say, and they they aren't necessarily always the same, and they're they're both equally valid uh, data points, so to speak, and you need to take both into account. And just because you feel like you're making a decision that's more emotionally based, uh, you know, as as long as you can afford that decision, there's nothing to say that you shouldn't make a decision. Uh, that that just makes uh, enables you to sleep better at night. Yeah, I think that that's a really really important point. Just because this is the appropriate based on metrics or surveys or whatever way you should be invested does not mean that it's going to be the right one. Because again, if you can't sleep, then it's probably not going to be the right thing for you. So I think that that's such an important thing for people to be considering and thinking about. Just to circle back on the idea that. The current state of the market, being that it just seems to be reaching new highs all the time, and it is, um, that that's causing inaction because people 
are, are told we're not supposed to be buying high, but if the market keeps going up and up and we don't know what's going to happen and then years go by and people just leave money in cash, I don't know if there's a right answer to that, but I suppose I, so how do you, how do you counsel people in, in, in that situation? Well, it's, it's a great example because this is an area where there are two competing schools of thought. And so suppose you have a lot of accumulated cash. One school of thought is that you should simply invest it all right up front. You know, they sort of refer to it as the lump sum approach. And it's a logical way to think about it because if you go back through market history, the market rises more often than it falls, or to put it another way, it, in, it goes up in value in more years than it goes down in value. And so if you just want to base your decision on, on the probabilities, then you'd say, well, just invest my money all at once today because odds are that it will go up in value over the next year and subsequently. The other approach is to say, no, 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 don't invest it all at once. Instead, take what they call a dollar cost averaging approach and invest in monthly installments, say, over 12 months or 18 months or more. And I think that that approach has more of an emotional benefit, which is that if you put all your money in on a, in a lump sum and the market goes down the next day, then you're going to feel terrible about it. And that it, it may be an obstacle, actually, to people doing anything uh, that they would have the fear that it would that it would immediately go down. And so I think dollar cost averaging has an emotional benefit, even if it doesn't, uh, you know, mathematically or probabilistically seem like the right answer. And so, you know, I, I like to describe that sort of uh, disagreement to people or those differing viewpoints and then have a discussion. I generally favor a dollar cost averaging approach, but I, I like to explain to people that, that there are these two approaches and where, where people are coming from in uh, advocating each approach. I think that makes a lot of sense. And, I, I you know, I, I, I wish that I probably should know this, but I don't think that I do, of, of how many people think that they can really time the market and beat it. And, and my perspective is that it's pretty hard to time the market. So it makes sense to take that dollar cost averaging approach and, it does limit potential regret if, if you put a bunch of money in and then it goes down the next day, even though it might go up in the future, you're still probably irritated and, 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 and um, regretful that you made that decision. Um, so in today's world of, of market fluctuation, it's going up, it's going down. How, how do you talk to your clients about, like, I guess, market timing or just being invested in such a volatile market? For me, the best way to protect yourself against market volatility is asset allocation. So the very first thing that someone ought to be doing when they have some money to invest is to think about, well, what cash needs do I have in the near future? And you could define the, define the near future as one year, two years, five years. But think about what your cash needs are. And if you're in retirement, it may be fairly easy you know, if you spend a hundred thousand a year, for example, you could say, well, I should have 200 or 400 or 500,000 that I want to set aside outside of the stock market. And that could be in bonds or it can be in cash. It, it, it sort of doesn't matter. The 
the most important thing is that it's out of the way of the stock market. And so that way, whether the market does what it did, say, in the fourth quarter last year, where it kind of drops off in you know, a double-digit way, uh, or if it does more like what it's done the first quarter of this year, you know, kind of increase double digits, it doesn't matter. So you know that you have enough money set aside to meet your spending needs for several years, then you should you should really not worry so much about volatility. And yes, of course, it's upsetting if you open up your statement and your account value is down. But if you know you have enough set aside outside of the market, then it's more of an abstract thing to say that your account is down uh, rather than something which which really could cause you um, financial damage. You know, if you're if you're selling uh, stocks when the market has gone down. So I think that's the best way to manage market volatility is just through through good asset allocation. Yeah, I think that that makes a lot of sense. Nice. Well, Adam, Savage Nation is ready for your difference-making tip. What do you have for them? Thanks, George. I think the most important thing is to avoid rules of thumb. And I think that there are a lot of rules of thumb out there, and they may be helpful, but I think that sometimes people rely on them too much. I spoke with someone recently who said that she had gone online and tried a retirement calculator and it told her that she needed something like $25 million <laughs> saved. Great. And, you know, we talked about a little bit about her spending needs, and it was pretty clear pretty quickly that she did not need $25 million. <clears throat> but I think that too often people get stuck on these things, whether it's the 4% rule or that your uh, asset allocation should be the sort of the one minus age rule of thumb. Uh, there's the view that um, that you should have a certain amount of life insurance, a certain amount of disability insurance that represents represents a percentage of your income. Uh, there's the view that your uh, Roth IRA, uh, or sorry, Roth 401k, uh, isn't something that you should use if you have a high income. And I think all of these things, they have a kernel of truth to them, but I, I would view them as a starting point and uh, not build a plan around them without thinking more about what the assumptions are behind these these rules of thumb. Well, I think that, that is great stuff. That definitely gets, come on. Come on. And Adam, thank you so much for coming on. Where can Savage Nation learn more about you? Thank you, George. My website is mayport.com. And I also publish an article each Sunday on humbledollar.com, which is a personal finance website. Excellent. Well, Savage Nation, if you enjoyed this as much as I did, show Adam your appreciation and share today's show with a friend who also appreciates good ideas. Thank you again, Adam. Thank you, George. I enjoyed it. And until next time, keep fighting the good fight because we are all in this together. What's up, Savage Nation? Please support the show by subscribing, leave us a review, and definitely feel free to share us with somebody you think would like it. Come on!